More than the style of his writing, though, it was the content of Justice Scalia's reasoning that shaped me. His judicial philosophy was straightforward. A judge must apply the law as it is written, not as she wishes it were. Are you sure that was his judicial philosophy, Judge Barrett? Because I don't think it was. Not at all. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, proudly heard on Maui's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on our fine streaming affiliates like the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. I hope you agree. Thank you very much for joining us today. The Republican Supreme Court packing is continuing today on day two in the GOP-run Senate Judiciary Committee as they try to jam yet another right-winger onto their already stolen U.S. Supreme Court. Now just 21 days before the deadline to cast a vote in this year's uh, historic presidential election on November 3rd, and with more than 10 million votes already cast in arguably the most critical election in our nation's history. The hypocrisy by the GOP, which spent an entire year in 2016 telling us that because a couple of primary elections had already happened when Justice Antonin Scalia died in February of that year, that because of that, no justice should ever, ever be considered for the Supreme Court during a presidential election year until after Americans have had their say in that election. The hypocrisy of this GOP is astounding. It is gobsmacking. It is breathtaking. But it is anything but surprising because voter suppression, lying and hypocrisy 
are now the core values, the apparently the only values of this Republican Party. And yes, those values extend to their years of court packing of the federal judiciary and again now at the Supreme Court. This week, uh, I have seen some hagiography about the rock-solid core the conservative values of Justice Antonin Scalia. Maybe you didn't uh, agree with him politically. Maybe you didn't care for his political worldview, but he was a rock-ribbed conservative constitutionalist or originalist or textualist, whatever you want to call him, when it came to interpreting the law and the Constitution. At least so goes the mythology for Antonin Scalia, as repeated even now by the mainstream media as they report on Amy Coney Barrett, who idolizes him and his unwavering, consistent judicial philosophy after having uh, served as a clerk in Scalia's office some years ago. The last paragraph, for example, of AP's article on this week's court packing uh, Supreme Court hearing uh, hearings before they began on Monday. The last paragraph of the uh, Associated Press's article reads, quote, Republicans will highlight Barrett's belief in sticking to the text of laws and the original meaning of constitutional provisions, both Scalia trademarks as well. Really? Were they really Scalia trademarks? Or is that just the myth that Republicans uh, love to project, along with similarly false claims like, oh, Republicans believe in fiscal conservatism or small local government? <laughs> Sorry, I, can't, I cannot laugh because, of course, these are all absurd. They don't believe in any of this They stuff. don't, but they say it over and over again, and the media report it as if it is actually true. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. How about that, uh, how about that myth that Republicans uh, love to project that no Supreme Court nominees should ever be considered during a presidential election year? Remember that one? That one stood up for about three years until we got to the next presidential election year. So, no, these are not uh, trademarks, AP. These are not beliefs. Uh, they are uh, lies, or, if you want to be kind, they're political positions that are used whenever they're helpful politically and ignored when they are not. Just like the myth, the con, that Justice Scalia was an originalist who believed, as A.P. Parrots, in sticking to the text of laws and the original meaning of constitutional provisions. Trademarks of the great jurist. Well, that, uh, that false premise, and I will point out how it was false when it came to Scalia, is exactly what Amy Coney Barrett, Donald Trump's third hard-right justice to be packed onto the currently nine-person court, um, that is exactly what she clung fast to. Is clung a word? Clinged fast well, I to. It, well, yeah. anyway, so she, she basically tied herself to it. Yes, she did. <laughs> During her uh, opening statements at the first day of the Judiciary Committee hearings on Monday, Here's what Amy Coney Barrett had to say. I also clerked for Justice Scalia. And like many law students, I felt like I knew the justice before I ever met him. 
because I had read so many of his colorful, accessible opinions. More than the style of his writing, though, it was the content of Justice Scalia's reasoning that shaped me. Mm. His judicial philosophy was straightforward. Mm -hmm. A judge must apply the law as it is written, not as she wishes it were. Mm. Sometimes that approach meant reaching results that he did not like. But as he put it in one of his best-known opinions, that is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Oh, I see. Is that what it is? Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. That is the approach that I have strived to follow as a judge on the Seventh Circuit. I believe Americans of all backgrounds deserve an independent Supreme Court that interprets our Constitution and laws as they are written. And I believe I can serve my country by playing that role. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was Amy Coney Barrett at her uh, opening remarks on Monday in her uh, confirmation hearings for the U.S. Supreme Court. Wanted to be fair there. Long clip, a minute 40 or so of her judicial philosophy as she ties herself there to her uh, hero, Antonin Scalia, and Scalia's uh, judicial philosophy, which she said was straightforward. She uh, vows to be like him, a, a judge uh, who must apply the law as written, not as the judge wishes that it were. Courts have a vital responsibility to enforce the rule of law. She says the policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to, to, to do so to right all the wrongs, and courts should not try to do so. All right, well, in other words, no activist judges. If the, uh, if the elected uh, people, if the legislature passes a law, then it's up to the uh, courts to make sure those laws are enforced, not to rewrite those laws. Even a poorly written law, written by the political branches, the people elected by and accountable to the people must be respected, even if it's a bad law. The public should not expect courts to fix those laws. And as she says, the courts should not try. Okay, fair enough. At least it's fair enough if that's what Scalia actually believed. But he didn't. It's a myth. It's another lie. And today, voters who are waiting on hours-long lines in places like Georgia and Texas where voters have already been waiting for three, four, six hours. One report ha had voters in line for 11 hours to vote in Georgia on Monday. Those voters have Scalia's, yes, activist judicial philosophy that is nothing like the myth forwarded by AP or parroted by Barrett to thank which she pretends to be following uh, in his footsteps as a Supreme Court justice. Well, those long lines to vote in jurisdictions previously covered by the Voting Rights Act 
until Justice Scalia helped lead the fight to gut them in uh, 20 to gut the act in 2013. That is all thanks in no no small part to Scalia's yes judicial activism, to his legislating from the bench, to his ignoring ignoring the clear text and the meaning of both the law and the constitution despite what AP has to say about it, because he believed the elected politicians who had most recently in 2006 voted 98 to 0 in the U.S. Senate to uphold and expand the law for another 25 years. He believed that those politicians got it wrong and it was up to him. It was up to the courts. And yes, the radical activist jurist Antonin Scalia to fix that mistake by legislating from the bench. That was Antonin Scalia. Uh, And that was uh, the justice that Amy Coney Barrett models herself after. As we reported at Bradblog.com back in 2013, after oral arguments in Shelby County, Alabama versus Eric Holder, this is the case that was brought by wealthy right-wing activists hoping to gut the section of the Voting Rights Act that requires all or parts of uh, 16 states at the time, predominantly in the South, states that uh, had a long history of racial discrimination, uh, that those jurisdictions had to receive preclearance for any new election-related laws from either, uh, they had to get clearance from either a federal court or from the U.S. Department of Justice before they could put those election laws into practice. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Because that section of the Voting Rights Act was struck down. Justice in in Shelby versus Holder, Justice Scalia's remarks about the landmark voting rights law were astounding at the time. And they were the complete opposite of his claims to be an originalist, a textualist, a, a constitutionalist who respects the Constitution and the law, uh, the rule of law as it is written as the Constitution is written, and as the law is written. In his remarks, uh, Scalia, uh, at the time, back in 2013, attempted to use his lifetime position on the judiciary to usurp both the legislative and executive branches, as well as the Constitution itself, as written. As written in a way that even someone like me, who is not a legal expert, I'm not an attorney, Uh, I'm not a constitutional expert, but even I could understand exactly what was written in the Constitution. But Scalia used that position on the court in his quest to dismantle the Voting Rights Act by, yes, legislating from the bench. As he said at the time, and as we reported back in 2013... Quoting from Scalia here on the bench during the oral argument, he said the problem here is that the initial enactment of this legislation in a time when the need for it was so much more abundantly clear was uh, in the Senate there. It was double digits against it. And that was only a five year term initially for the law. The law was supposed to be sunset in five years unless it was expanded. Then, he said, it is reenacted five years later, again for a five-year term, double digits against it in the Senate. Now, mind you, when he says double digits against it, it still passed with a majority of votes, but apparently if there are 10 or more senators who oppose it, it's terrible. It's double digits against it in the Senate. 
Then he notes it was react it was reenacted for seven years, single digits against it at the time, and then it was enacted for 25 years, eight Senate votes against it, and this last reenactment, he said, not a single vote in the Senate against it. And the House, he said, was pretty much the same. He said, now, I don't think that's attributable to the fact that it is so much clearer now that we need this law. I think it is attributable, very likely attributable, to a phenomenon that is called perpetuation of racial entitlement. Whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get them out through the normal political process. He said, I don't think there is anything to be gained by any senator to vote against continuation of this act, and I am fairly confident it will be reenacted in perpetuity unless, unless a court can say that it does not comport with the Constitution. This is not the kind of question, he said, that you can leave to Congress. So you got that? Even though the law had most recently been reenacted yet again by Congress with a 98 to nothing vote in the U.S. Senate, this can't be left up to the elected officials who face accountability by the electorate, as Amy Coney Barrett tried to pretend that Scalia believed in and that she pretends that she also believes in. She certainly knows what happened in Shelby v. Holder. It was a landmark uh, moment in gutting the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965, which, since its gutting, has served to disenfranchise voters across the nation. Surely... She knows about that, and at the very least, about she knows about Scalia's obnoxious comments about the law, quote, perpetuating race, racial entitlements. But his remarks uh, during the oral argument make clear that he believes some laws cannot simply be left up to lawmakers, left up to the elected officials who are accountable to the people, because, you know, they'll just vote in favor of it or against it. If it's left up to them, the courts must come in and must overrule what, in this case, Scalia felt was bad law that, quote, does not comport with the Constitution. But even on that last point, Scalia was lying. He was plainly lying. Scalia has the uh, temerity and the strict constructionism hypocrisy to charge that this matter is not the kind of question that you can just leave to Congress. Which is funny, because the 15th Amendment of the Constitution, which was ratified in 1870, which the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was finally passed to enforce... 95 years later, 95 years after the 15th Amendment was put in place, it specifically calls for exactly that, for Congress to enforce this amendment. It express, expressly reads that this is a matter for Congress to determine, not the states and not the courts. So here's the 15th Amendment in its entirety, if you're not familiar with it. It's very short. It's two sentences long. Section 1. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. 
Got it? That's section one. Pretty simple to understand. This was uh, passed, uh, adopted uh, after the Civil War to give slaves, essentially, the right to vote. Section two, even shorter. Section two, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Got that? Do I need to repeat that? The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That is it. That's the entire 15th Amendment. And it's so clear that even a dummy like me, who is not a constitutional expert, can pretty well understand it. I mean, is there anything unclear about it? Do you have difficulty understanding that, Desi Doyen? I have no difficulty. Even you can understand. <laughs> a conservative, strict constructionist reading of the second section of that 15th Amendment seems pretty damn easy to understand. Even for someone like me or Desi, we are not constitutional scholars. It's easy for us to understand it. I would say it's even uh, easy for, say, a Supreme Court justice with a lifetime appointment to the bench who is regarded as everyone as such a genius, such a rock-ribbed conservative, so consistent in his rulings when it comes to the rule of law that it's the rule of law, the words of the laws themselves and the words of the Constitution themselves that must be, uh, that the court must make sure to take care of, even in the case of a bad law. I mean, it seems pretty easy. It seems pretty easy, uh, you know, a conservative reading of that uh, that measure in the uh, that amendment in the Constitution to understand. Now, I guess maybe a wildly liberal inter uh, interpretation of the phrase that uh, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article could magically be construed as the exact opposite of what it says. It could be read, I guess, as this is uh, not the kind of question that you can leave to Congress, but that does not seem, that would seem to be a pretty liberal interpretation of that sentence. But that is what Scalia argued, that this is not the kind of question you can leave to Congress. And as Barrett, Oemi uh, Coney Barrett, uh, pretended that Scalia did not believe, and that she is now pretending that she does not believe. When she says that, as she did on Monday in her opening statements for her lifetime confirmation to the Supreme Court, that a judge must apply the law as written, not as the judge wishes it were. Now, as I wrote back in 2013 on this, uh, setting aside whether one agrees or disagrees with Scalia's legal opinions or political policies or partisan preferences on any particular issue, his untethered rant during the uh, during the hearing on uh, on Shelby County should once and for all destroy the ridiculous pretense that this man is now anything but a wild eyed radical. He is certainly anything but an originalist or a strict constructionist or a conservative, as I wrote at the time. Scalia is plainly a radical judicial activist legislating from the bench on one of the most central and vital issues to our entire system of governance in this nation. And that is who Amy Coney Barrett is modeling herself after. And of course, uh, while I expect Republicans and Amy Coney Barrett to lie about the myth uh, to the contrary, it sure would be nice if AP, at least, 
did not perpetuate that myth by writing, as they did on Monday, Republicans will highlight Barrett's belief in sticking to the text of laws and the original meaning of constitutional provisions, both Scalia trademarks as well. Because Scalia did not stick to the text of the laws and the original meaning of the constitutional provisions, which is very clear in that 15th Amendment, and when it comes to one of the most consequential decisions that he ever made from the bench. So I have reason to believe, call me crazy, but I have reason to believe that Amy Coney Barrett will uh, be no more faithful to that phony principle than the other Republicans in her party are when it comes to similarly uh, false fidelity to the principles of fiscal conservatism or to small local government should decide issues rather than big government at the state or federal level. Or that a Supreme Court nominee should never be considered during a presidential election year. An idea, by the way, that Amy Coney Barrett herself once appeared to endorse, along with her political party back in 2016, when that lie was all the rage. Here she is in 2016 defending the principle that a vacancy should be uh, filled, should never be filled in a presidential election year. This was her on CBS, while I believe that she was still a, a, a Notre Dame law professor at the time, explaining that the one time that a justice actually was seated in an election year in modern history, that would be the now-retired Justice Anthony Sk uh, Kennedy, that, well, that was very early in the year, and he was nominated the previous year when the vacancy on the court actually occurred. So, you know, in modern history, we would never put someone on the court in an election year. Oh, and she also noted that uh, Kennedy was not replacing an appointee from a different party because changing the balance of the court by doing that in an election year would absolutely be unheard of in a presidential election year. Here's Amy Coney Barrett in 2016 on CBS. That situation was distinguishable. Um, the nomination, the vacancy did not arise in the presidential election year. It arose the year before in June when, when uh, Justice Powell retired. And Justice Kennedy was nominated in November of the prior year. Moreover, he was nominated after Bork's nomination had failed and Ginsburg withdrew his nomination. So the, the wrangling for the spot, the conversation about the spot, the existence of the spot um, had been in play for a long time before that. Moreover, Kennedy is a moderate Republican and he replaced a moderate Republican, Powell. Um, we're talking about Justice Scalia, you know, the staunchest conservative on the court, and we're talking about him being replaced by someone who could dramatically flip the uh, balance of power on the court. It's not a lateral move. Uh -huh. So you see, that's just one reason. That's Well, that's several reasons why you would never want to replace a, a Supreme Court justice in an election year, especially, especially not when you're replacing a rock-ribbed conservative like uh, Justice Scalia with a, uh, a centrist, moderate, Democratic appointee like Merrick Garland, uh, who did not even receive a hearing from Republicans for an entire year in 2016 after Justice Scalia died, with Amy Coney Barrett going out and explaining exactly why that was appropriate. But now, now we're talking about replacing the court's most liberal, most progressive icon on the court with the staunchest so-called conservative that Republicans could find, Amy Coney Barrett, in a presidential election year, less than 50 days 
after the court's most liberal member passed away. Just 46 days before the presidential election, uh, and, and, and she will be seated, if all goes as planned, about one week before that election, after, after tens of millions of Americans have already cast their ballots in the presidential race, most likely not for the president who nominated her. But of course... That was 2016. And in 2020, the balance of the court will be flipped, this time by Amy Coney Barrett, the liar and the hypocrite, who is, yes, in the exact same model of the liar and the hypocrite that she reveres, the radical extremist judicial activist Antonin Scalia. It would be nice if Republicans could at least tell the truth about that, but they no longer seem to be able to tell the truth about anything. It would also be nice if Democrats could make the case not unlike the one that I just made here on the show. Maybe they are. Maybe they have been. I don't know. I have not been able to watch much of these hearings because I'm trying to keep up with what's going on in our elections at the same time as people around the country are trying to vote after uh, Antonin Scalia gutted the Voting Rights Act and has made it much harder for a whole bunch of those people. So, yeah, speaking of the Voting Rights Act and other things that we no longer seem to have in this country to encourage an actual democratic republic as envisioned by our Constitution, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and look at at least some of those voting issues uh, and, and how those uh, oh, and how those judges that the Republicans have packed onto the federal courts are handling them. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. People are walking on. They are willing to crawl across broken glass, it seems, this year to vote. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it's really hard, uh, really hard, covering both a presidential election and a Supreme Court nomination at the same time, uh, which is probably one of the reasons that uh, they have never happened at the same time before in the history of our republic, at least not this close to an election. And it's almost certainly one of the reasons that it is happening now, I would argue, under this president and this hypocritical Republican Party. But I am doing my best. So let's jump into uh, just some of the voting problems today and the unprecedented number of court battles over at least some of them. We'll see how many we can get to today before our latest Green News report coming oh, yes. up in just a few minutes. <laughs> You will not want to miss that. Um, so after we reported on the three and four hours long lines at the polls in Georgia on our previous show, uh, at least the polls in the uh, some of the most heavily minority areas of the state yesterday, um, 
In the evening, uh, after we got off air, reports had turned to some lines in Georgia, which saw voters waiting for 11 or even 12 hours. Due not only to the enthusiasm of voters on the first day of early voting in the Peach State, but um, where they're, by the way, featuring both the presidential race and two U.S. Two US Senate races, uh, but also thanks to the voting system breakdowns in Georgia. Who could have predicted them? Uh, and the fact that because Georgia forces voters to use a touchscreen voting machine to cast their ballot, that means that only a limited number of voters can vote at once. Only as many as there are machines for them to vote on, unlike with hand-marked paper ballots, where anyone you know, with a clipboard and a pen uh, or a table or whatever uh, can vote. Uh, along with hundreds of other voters all at the same time. You can't do that when you're using touchscreen voting systems uh, where you have to have enough machines, where only enough uh, people can vote that you have machines for. So we are seeing a similar story now today in Texas, another state where these uh, problems might have been avoided had Amy Coney Barrett's hypocritical hero Antonin Scalia not helped to gut the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Early voting began in Texas on Tuesday with long lines in San Antonio and Houston, some the result of increased turnout and others linked to, wait for it, voting machine glitches, failures. New York Times got it right. They called it (laughs) failures instead of a glitch or a hiccup or a snag or a snafu. So, yes, good work, New York Times, but uh, less so for the top elected official who described the problem in Fort Bend County. That's near Houston, I guess the Houston suburbs, um, home to over 400,000 registered voters, all voting machines at all 30 early voting sites did not work on Tuesday morning. All 40 sites? Yep. Oh, my. So that would, uh, yeah, that would be a failure. But uh, it was because, according to Judge K.P. George, the county's top elected official, it was because of, quote, a programming glitch. Just a glitch. Yeah, when I went in there and I programmed and I put a glitch in. Because, you know, that's just an accidental. Just a glitch. It was a hiccup. It kept all hundreds of tens of thousands of voters at 30 early voting sites from being able to vote on Tuesday morning. Just a glitch. Uh, What was that glitch in the programming? Well, uh, that's unknown at this time. I'm sure they'll get it all sorted out at some point, though. Fort Bend forces all voters, like the entire state of Georgia, Fort Bend County in Texas forces all voters to vote on touchscreen ballot marking devices, or BMDs. So if they have a programming glitch, like the voters across uh, the entire state of Georgia also did on Monday, well, um, voters can't vote, unlike with hand-marked paper ballots. And I'm sure the voters of Fort Bend did not mind a few extra hours in line today because their elected officials hate them so much that they're forcing them to vote on unverifiable BMDs that break down like that all the time. The coronavirus also is said to have contributed to the problems in Texas, a polling site in the Fort Worth suburb of Euless. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Really? Hearst, Euless, Bedford. Okay, there you go. Uh, A polling site there uh, was closed after a poll worker tested positive. Mm. 
Uh, the county election official said, quote, we are in the process of finding a replacement crew for the site and we'll open it as soon as possible. You may recall that while the state's Republican governor, Greg Abbott, has a statewide mask mandate in place, he has exempted churches and polling places from that mandate. So, uh, oh, well, sorry, Texans. Good luck not dying while you're voting. Oh, here's an idea. You can cast an, uh, a mail-in ballot instead. Wait, what? You can't? Because you live in Texas? Because Texas has one of the most restrictive absentee ballot rules in the nation, disallowing most voters younger than 65 from requesting an absentee ballot even during a pandemic? Sorry again, Texas voters. Too bad. And of course, I mean that facetiously. I am furious about it. I really am sorry, Texas voters, that your government is doing this to you, that they are putting your life in danger, that they are making you choose between risking your life and casting your vote. But hey, at least uh, those of you who are allowed to vote by absentee can conveniently drop them off at one of, uh, one of many locations near where you live, right? Womp womp. Yeah, sorry, wrong again. Thanks also to Governor Abbott, who just made that much harder for millions of Texans. And of course, to Donald Trump's and the Republican court packing that is overturning lower court rulings on these matters. Last week... Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott claimed to be helping to protect election security by allowing only one drop-off site in each Texas county. Democrats accused Abbott of trying to suppress the vote with that move, with that proclamation. Over the weekend, a federal judge blocked the Texas plan to limit voters to uh, one location per county for dropping off absentee ballots finding that those restrictions place an undue burden on older and disabled citizens. Well, that's good. The limit had been imposed as Texas experienced a surge in requests for absentee ballots, even though most Texans are not allowed to vote that way. Judge Robert Pittman over the weekend ruled, uh, siding with the Texas League of United Latin American Citizens and others who had uh, sued to get the uh, drop-off limit reversed, uh, argued uh, the judge argued that the governor was forcing absentee voters to travel farther and to more crowded locations, increasing the risk to the populations that are already especially vulnerable to the coronavirus. Remember, these are people who are generally 65 years of age or older or who are already sick with the virus. And the judge also noted that the U.S. Postal Service had themselves warned that they might not be able to deliver ballots in time to be counted. So that was a good ruling over the weekend. But of course, because Texas, the state appealed and lucky them, they got three Republican appointed judges at the appeals court in the Fifth Circuit, one of the most right wing uh, appeals courts in the nation. And even luckier still. All three of those Republican-appointed judges were appointed by, you guessed it, Donald Trump. A U.S. federal appeals court panel on Monday night upheld Texas Governor Greg Abbott's order to shut down dozens of mail drop-off uh, sites 
before the November election. The Texas Secretary of State, according to NBC News, had argued that Abbott's order was part of a 40-day expansion of Texans' absentee voting opportunities put in place because of COVID-19. So in other words, because he extended the early voting period, they didn't need more drop boxes. That was good enough. That's the argument they're making. The U.S. Court of Appeals... It's like apples and oranges. Yeah, well, I know. Don't tell me. I know, I know. They won't even let me into a courtroom. Much I can't. They won't even let me on Twitter, much less a courtroom. Are you kidding? <laughs> the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit said that it agreed with the Texas Secretary of State in a ruling that TPM's uh, Tierney Sneed described as "up is downism." I think that's a good way to describe it. The notoriously conservative U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, she writes, reinstated the draconian limits that Texas Governor Greg Abbott imposed on mail ballot drop-off options. In doing so, the appeals court concluded that Texas is actually expanding voting, even though Abbott's move limited mail-in ballot drop boxes to one per county in a state where some counties are bigger in area than some entire states and other counties have larger populations than some entire states. At least a handful of Texas counties, many of them which tend to be Democratic-leaning, had planned to set up multiple sites for ballot drop-off. But the appeals court said that because Abbott had expanded uh, for the pandemic the period during which voters can hand-submit their ballots... Previously, that was an option only available on Election Day, but because they can do it now during early voting, his later order that came later to limit where they can be dropped off, that that should not be construed as a restriction on the right to vote. The fact that this expansion is not as broad as plaintiffs would wish, they wrote, does not mean that it has illegally limited their voting rights. Uh, We cannot conclude, they said, that speculating about postal delays for hypothetical absentee voters, delays that were actually reported in warnings by the Postal Service itself to the state, uh, we cannot conclude that these hypothetical uh, issues uh, somehow renders Texas absentee uh, ballot system constitutionally flawed, said the court, said the three Donald Trump appointees. On the court, the court gave credence to the state's vague and unsupported claim that ballot drop off restrictions were necessary to prevent voter fraud. They also touted the state's assertion that the restrictions would bring uniformity to the voting system in Texas. Do I have give me one second here because I need to just speak. I I promise this will be fast. But this is another long running GOP scam. This idea of uniformity when it comes to voting. It's a scam uh, that they first successfully used uh, during the 2000 presidential election dispute in Florida when they went all the way to the Supreme Court, making the argument that because different counties have different standards for recounts, therefore none of the counties should be recounted, essentially. They, they, they all had to be uniform, uh, even though every county already uses a different type of voting system from the other counties, and even within the same county, they use different types of voting systems as well. Some vote by absentee, some vote at the polls, and then even at the polls, they often have the choice between a hand-marked paper ballot or using an accessible computer device. 
for disabled voters who may choose to use them. So, you know, there's no uniformity. Please add that word. When you hear that, that is a code word that should set off alarm bells when you hear it. Um, Republicans are, you know, referring to uniformity all the time now for all sorts of things that they want to do. But it is not uniform uh, that Harris County, Houston, has one drop box uh, for some 4.7 million voters versus Rockwall County in Texas in the same state who has about 100,000 voters. They only have one drop box as well. That is not uniform. That's the argument they're making. Oh, it's uniform. Every county has one drop-off location. But uniform would mean that there is the same number of drop-off locations per capita in each county. That would be uniform. But don't tell the so-called conservative jackasses appointed by Donald Trump to the U.S. Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. Don't try to explain facts and logic and stuff like that. That won't go over well. The court, in fact, treated the many miles that voters in some counties, like Harris County, uh, which is geographically larger than Rhode Island. Harris County itself, larger than the entire state of Rhode Island. And with traffic, it'll take you about four hours to drive across it. Well, so uh, but the court treated that as the exact same uh, as it would be in any county in Texas. and it would, uh, you know, delivering ballots, uh, waiting in traffic for hours to do so. That's just an inconvenience, as they described it. Mail-in ballot rules that merely make casting a ballot more inconvenient for some voters. That is not constitutionally suspect, they said. The case was uh, before an appellate panel of three Trump-appointed judges. Harris County, which includes much of the sprawling city of Houston, I believe it's the third largest uh, voting uh, jurisdiction in the nation. Uh, They have a population of more than 4.7 million. They had created 11 ballot drop-off locations. Dallas County, the uh, state's second largest county by population, they initially had opened five drop-off locations. Now, at least if this uh, order holds, they can each have one. Just one. One Dropbox for 4.7 million people. That's going to be some line. And now they uh, will all have uh, one drop-off location because, you know, that's uniform. That's fair. By the way, there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the U.S. at all, according to pretty much every investigation and study. And the state of Texas presented no such evidence to demonstrate otherwise in their court filing. I should note that as of Today, the uh, 538.com average of pre-election polling in Texas finds Donald Trump leading in the state by a spare 1.4 percentage points over Joe Biden. In a state that has not elected a Democratic president since 1976, it's also worth noting today that the Cook Political Report has shifted their rating in the U.S. Senate race in Texas this year between incumbent Republican Senator John Cornyn and Democratic challenger M.J. Hagar has shifted that towards the Democrat, moving their ratings from likely Republican to just lean Republican. All just coincidences as Texas Republicans are panicking to try to keep people in the most Democratic-leaning parts of the state from being able to cast a vote at all. Uh, meanwhile, do I have 
Time for one more here. Very quickly, a uh, severed fiber optic cable shut down the uh, uh, voting in Virginia's, actually not voting, shut down Virginia's online voter registration system for several hours today, the last day to register before the November general election. Naturally. The Virginia Department of Elections said in a statement on Twitter that a fiber cut affected connectivity for multiple agencies, including the department's citizen portal and registrar's office. It was inadvertently cut, we are told, during a roadside utilities project, according to the state's IT agency. Six hours later, the Department of Elections issued a statement saying the portal was now back online. But the fallout already included threats of legal action and concern that voters were being disenfranchised at a crucial moment. Voting advocates say that the accident could not have come at a worse time. They lambasted state officials for the failure. The day of the deadline is when many Virginians decide to register. The Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights under law said it was considering legal action to ask for an extension of the registration deadline. Virginia's Democratic Governor Ralph Northam said at a press conference he supports such an extended deadline, but he said it appears that only the courts have the ability to do that. Northam said there was no backup plan for this particular cable, and the episode shows the need for the state to continue its effort at creating a secure network. Secretary of Administration uh, of the state said that the cut occurred on a 10 gigabyte optical fiber circuit that was installed this spring to help the state handle increased web demand during the coronavirus. But hey, when you run a system that relies on the Internet, as many states now do with their polling place registration check ins with electronic poll books, Well, it's bad enough that it happened on the last day of registration in Virginia. Let's just uh, hope we don't see something similar, something like, say, a ransomware attack on the last day for voting in states like that, which just happens to fall on November 3rd this year, if you're keeping track at home. Lesson, do not wait this year until the last minute for anything, for registering to vote, for requesting a mail-in ballot, for delivering that ballot hopefully in person, hopefully hand-marked, hopefully, or even waiting until November 3rd to vote in person, if that's your preference this year. I believe it is smart this year to presume that anything can, and given how things are working out this year, probably will go wrong. So do not wait. Speaking of things that can go wrong, (laughs) quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on a very busy broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. So much news, so little time in our one little hour. Uh, Made even worse for you, Desi Doyen, in your six minutes of our latest Green News Report. Hurricane Delta is the 10th named storm to make landfall this year. Hurricane season has nearly two months to go. Climate change? 
What climate change? Cleanup and recovery begin in battered Louisiana in wake of Hurricane Delta. Plus, let's talk about who is prepared to lead our country over the course of the next four years on what is an existential threat. Climate change in the spotlight at the one and only 2020 vice presidential debate. Yay! And that's not saying much. Ooh, all of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. On the subject of climate change, Pence made another hollow promise. We're going to take care of our environment and follow the science. We will follow it, and once it is asleep, we will smother it with a pillow. It will look like an accident. This much I swear. <laughs> no swearing, Mike. This is your Green News Report. Hey, Desi Doyen. Yes. At the vice presidential debate, not only did they bring up climate change, but they brought it up in like the first half hour or so. You got to be happy about that. Well, yes, it's true that the vice presidential debate had a solid seven minutes about climate change, but it was not an actual substantive debate on either climate change or policy. So, yeah, no, not really. Nothing is ever good enough for you people, <laughs> it, is it? It can be way better. Uh-huh. But first, okay. recovery and cleanup operations are underway in beleaguered, storm-weary Louisiana in the wake of the destructive Hurricane Delta, which slammed into the state on Friday night as a Category 2 hurricane near Lake Charles. Delta hit just a few miles from where Hurricane Laura made landfall just six weeks ago, stripping off blue tarps from damaged homes. Three deaths are linked to the storm. The Washington Post reports that ravaged municipalities are still awaiting word from FEMA on whether they will receive full reimbursement for costs incurred during these two hurricanes and how much federal aid they can count on. Delta was the first Greek-named storm to hit the U.S. in recorded history and the fourth to strike Louisiana in 2020. And why was it a Greek-named storm? Because we ran out of English-named storms and now we're into the Greek alphabet. Cool. What happens after the Greek alphabet? Armageddon? Yeah. Driven by record warm ocean temperatures, Delta broke the record for the fastest intensifying storm in the Atlantic Basin. Climate scientists say man-made climate change is increasing the intensity and the frequency of the most dangerous hurricanes. So keep those facts in mind as you hear Republican Vice President Mike Pence at the sole vice presidential debate of the 2020 election held last week in Utah deflect questions about climate science and lie about policy. Moderator Susan Page of USA Today did not ask Pence about the Trump administration's persistent denial of the scientific consensus on climate change. She did not ask about the administration's rollbacks of more than 100 pollution and climate regulations or about Trump's lack of any climate policy. Instead, she went retro to ask Pence if he believed the scientific community. The climate is changing. But the issue is, what's the cause and what do we do about it? President Trump has made it clear that we're going to continue to listen to the science. Mike Pence, partying like it's 1999. Scientists, of course, know what causes climate change, and we know what to do about it, but voters did not hear those solutions. Throughout the debate, Pence ignored questions and instead pivoted to repetitive talking points, invoking the Green New Deal 11 times as if it were a mantra, even on unrelated topics. And he flat out lied about Joe Biden's position on fracking. Senator Kamala Harris defended Biden's positions. I will repeat, and the American people know, that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact. 
that is a fact because a president can't ban fracking. Only Congress can do that. But a president can regulate it, which Biden has pledged to do. Also, banning fracking isn't really the point. No one banned coal mining, but it is going away anyway because of market forces. Harris then linked Trump's dismissal of climate science to his failed response to the pandemic that has killed more than 210,000 Americans. We have seen a pattern with this administration, which is they don't believe in science. And Joe's plan is about saying we're going to deal with it, but we're also going to create jobs. Senator Harris missed an opportunity to detail Biden's $2 trillion plan to create jobs by transitioning the nation to clean energy or how it differs from the proposed Green New Deal framework. Polling is extremely consistent that voters overwhelmingly favor climate action and they do not trust Trump and Republicans to do anything on climate policy. It's unclear if voters understand that Trump and Pence have no plans to address climate change. And with the corporate media still stuck at square one asking candidates about their beliefs, voters are still not getting the substantive climate policy discussion they need and deserve. Is that it? (laughs) That's it. That was very good. Okay. It was like watching the vice presidential debate all over again, except without all of the boring parts and, of course, without the fly. Other than that, nice job. For much more on these stories and the ones we couldn't get to because of them, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Day we'll get the kind of climate change yeah. policy debate that we deserve. If only, if only the science was in. We'll follow <laughs> the science, but we're just waiting for the science to de- to come in on that. Thank yeah. you very much, Desi Doyen, and thanks to all of you for spending a uh, portion. I almost said a party of your day with us. <laughs> Uh, It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that is a service made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you for that. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me, yes, at the Bradblog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>